I'm going to welcome you back today for the second message in a brand new study that really has a crucial component to it as we are learning this biblical affirmation that Jesus is Lord. And my aim for this study is to help you gain crystal clarity so that you know what that means, that Jesus is Lord, and then it cultivates within you a sense of conviction that really stirs your courage so that you can stand firm in the fact that Jesus is Lord. I promise you this, I can't, I can't account for the body of Christ, but what I can do is I can pastor the people God has given me. And if there's anything I could do for you over the next season of your life is to help you be firm in this fact, because I promise you, culture is shifting. And there, there are increasing pressures mounting against believers to give up on components of our faith. And there's a there's a pressure that's building even within the hearts of believers where you feel maybe a little bit embarrassed about the things that you need to stand with because, again, culture has moved so far. So lest you fall away, my hope for you in this study is that you gain a clear sense of conviction and that you are able to stand firm in the fact that Jesus is Lord. Last week we put under the microscope the apostolic preaching, the first message of the church, the apostle Paul kind of identified what that was. He said, we preach that Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus is points to the fact that he is our savior. The name Jesus means God saves. And the fact that he is Christ, Messiah, is a reference to him as the son of the living God. So the savior and the son is Lord. And the word Lord, we discovered, points out authority. It means someone who's in control, almighty. They have power. Now, two things that we learned about lordship last week that are going to be important for you to remember as we proceed through this series is number one, Jesus is Lord means that Jesus is God. He has a unique identity. He is God. As we mentioned, one theologian summarized this way. He said that simple statement, Jesus is Lord, means that Jesus is the personification of the personal name of Yahweh, the I am. Jesus is the great I am. Jesus is God. That's what he is Lord means. Another thing that we have to take into consideration is not only is that who he is, but he's also earned the right to be your Lord. Consider his qualifications. Man, he lived his life perfectly, obediently, 
able to offer himself as a substitute sacrifice, his sinless life for our sinful lives. He was raised from the, the dead, giving evidence that God truly forgives us. He has ascended into heaven. He's seated at the right hand of God, the seat of power, the seat of authority. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to Jesus. If anyone has the right to have authority over you to be in control of your life, it's Jesus. So today we're going to tackle some, some ideas behind this Jesus is Lord. We're going to look at a couple of difficult scriptures that address his lordship in our lives. And here's what I'm going to work toward. Here's the conclusion that I want everyone to draw from today. And that is Jesus must, look at that word, Jesus must become the Lord of my life. In fact, let's just make that a declaration. Say that with me. Jesus must become the Lord of my life. Now, I'm certain everybody in the room is familiar with autocorrect. It's the feature on your phone, which is trying to anticipate what you're saying. And sometimes it will edit uh, a word that you use trying to, you know, make a, a correction for what it thinks you mean. Have you ever had an had an autocorrect fail where a word gets substituted in that you didn't mean at all. Well, here's one example. You don't know what I'm talking about. Here's one example of that. It says, happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dead husband. <laughs> happy birthday to you. Thanks. I assume you meant dear. Ah, crazy autocorrect, right? We've, we've seen this. We've had this happen. There was a guy driving on Luke 289, got a text from his wife. She was at the mall in a department store dressing room, and she sent him a picture of her, and she said, does my bottom look big in these jeans? Well, don't text and drive, right? That's a, that's a thing. But at the same time, he realizes a pause in response is going to be a response, so I better answer this one quickly. So using the voice, you know, you know, he knew, which it changed to moo. And they still ain't talking, y'all. So listen, today, as we work towards this conclusion that Jesus must be the Lord of our life. We're going to navigate some difficult ideas, some challenging scriptures, and I'm going to tell you, there's going to be a temptation to auto-correct what the text says. Because we would prefer to take out some of that tension and discomfort and just kind of, well, what it really means is, and I'm just going to tell you, we're going to resist the temptation to auto-correct. And we're letting them say what it, what it says, and we're going to embrace the, the tension that comes with the subject of Jesus being the Lord of your life. Okay? Take your Bible, open with me to 1 Peter chapter 3. That's a New Testament book of the Bible. It's back towards the back end section. If you need to, look at the table of contents. 1 Peter will give you a page number. You can turn to it. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15 is going to be our focal text. But again, we're going to have a few others that we're going to consider. And some of the texts we're going to look at have been so contentious that they have created theological divides. 
And churches have split over the implications of a couple of these verses. So this is going to be fun. Now, 1 Peter was a, a section of scripture written as a note of encouragement from the apostle Peter, written to Jewish-born people who were natives of Israel, but along the way, they had discovered and dedicated themselves to the fact that Jesus was the Messiah. So they had confessed with their mouth. They believed in their heart, and they confessed with their mouth that Jesus Christ was Lord. Now, Remember from last week as we talked about that confession, Jesus Christ is Lord. That got the early church in trouble. Because the, the belief, the conviction that Jesus is the way, not a way. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Like that confession that Jesus Christ is Lord, it offended some religious people. It also offended the government. Because the Roman government had ordered that people confess Caesar is Lord. Caesar is the supreme authority for everyone's life. So the consequence of this confession that Jesus is Lord got these, got these Jewish Christians, but also other first century believers, into a difficult circumstance where they start to receive persecution. They're mocked, they're ridiculed, they're targeted, they're subjected to all kinds of discrimination by people and by authorities. So many of them decided we're going to leave our homes and we're going to go somewhere else where it might be more peaceful for us to live. But what they found out was persecution followed them. And so Peter wrote this letter to console them but also to instruct them to stand firm in the conviction that Jesus is Lord. In fact, he encouraged them, take this bad situation and use it for good by making the Lordship of Christ something even more personal than just Jesus is Lord. Man, let Jesus be your Lord. So he's going to drive it in even deeper. So in verse 13... He writes, now, who will want to harm you if you are eager to do good? Peter acknowledges here that, man, when we are under pressure, sometimes we can snap. But instead, like, the encouragement is like, hold the line in doing good. Even though you're going through some hard stuff, hold the line in doing good. Verse 14, but even if you suffer for doing what is right, God will reward you for it. So don't worry or be afraid of their threats. Now, here's the focal point, verse 15. Instead, look at this. You must worship Christ as Lord of your life. There's our focus for today. You must worship Christ as Lord of your life. And if someone asks you, which they're going to, man, if Jesus becomes the Lord of your life, things are going to change for you. And people are going to look at some of those changes and they're going to go, what's up with you? And so we have to always be ready to explain it. You've got you to explain to someone why Jesus is the Lord of your home. You may have to describe for someone why Jesus is in control of your career. You, you may have to explain to someone Jesus' authority dictates your sex life. 
But when Jesus is Lord, man, you, you make him Lord of everything that you are. Let's break this down. First of all, notice that we have to worship Christ as the Lord of our life. This is bringing Jesus back into view. It's reminding us that Jesus is the one with supreme authority and power. Jesus is the Lord. Then look at this word, worship. Uh, the, the root word hagios in the Greek language means to sanctify, to set apart, uh, to make holy. Nor normally, when we are thinking about sanctifying someone or something, it, it's about making them or it more holy. But in this case, we can't make Jesus more of what he already is. He is holy. He is Lord. Sometimes when we're talking to people about some spiritual growth in our life and decisions that we make to worship Christ as Lord, somebody will say, man, I'm, I've, I've made Jesus Lord of my life. Well, technically, we don't make him anything. The reality is we are now acknowledging. We're seeing his lordship in our life. The word worship is pointing to a reverent way, like you're acknowledging who Jesus is in your life in a reverent way. Some translations use the word honor. Honor Christ as Lord of your life. That means that you are, you're seeing him for who he is. You're recognizing his position in your life, like he is Lord so we're going to worship Christ, and notice this one, as the Lord of your life. The, the word life in Greek is the word kardias, which is the word for heart. And so it means to worship the Lord as Lord of your heart. What does that mean? It means that Jesus is in his place in the most intimate and deep places of your life. Heart points to the personal, not private. A lot of people that approach their spiritual life say, well, you know, religion, that's a, that's a private thing. In my, my walk with God, that, that's, that's, that's personal, that's private. This doesn't mean private. What it means is Christ is the Lord of the deepest and truest and most intimate places of your heart and life. You acknowledge his control over every nook and cranny of your heart. Now notice this. Look at the urgency. You what? Must acknowledge Christ as having this place of Lordship and control in your life. Jesus, listen, must be in control of your life. Jesus belongs in the driver's seat of your life. There's no aspect of your life where he should be off limits. He has the right to be in charge of your marriage. He has the right to be in charge of your sexuality. He has the right to be in charge of your money, to be in charge of your tongue, what you say. 
in charge of your eyes, what you look at, in charge of your hands, what you touch, in charge of your feet, where you go. Jesus is Lord of all. Now, people watching from the outside as you deal with this mandate that Jesus must be Lord of your life, people will look from the outside and they will think, you're crazy. My body, my choice. Like I'm sovereign over me. I have full freedom over me. I can do whatever I want. Listen, as a believer in Jesus, as a follower of Christ, you must worship him. You must honor him as the Lord of your life, which means he's God. He's earned the right to be your Lord and you welcome him to be in control of the deepest most personal places of your life. Now, some of us don't know about this. First Corinthians chapter six, ask this question. Don't you realize, look at that. Don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? Remember that. Don't, don't you realize that? The Holy Spirit lives inside of you. Look at this. You do not belong to yourself. Don't you realize this? Did you not know this? That you don't belong to yourself. For God bought you with a high price, so you must honor God with your body. Your whole self belongs to the Lord. And we have a responsibility to just yield to his control over our life. Now, this is where, this is where we start feeling tensions. And this is where we start having controversy. That Jesus is entitled to be the Lord of your life. Now let's bring some clarification. Saving faith doesn't require that you know everything from the start. The good news of the gospel is God loves you. He really does. Even the fact that you're a sinner, God loves you. And Jesus lived his life faithfully so he could give his life fully for us. And he was raised from the dead. And he offers us forgiveness and offers us a new life. And when you hear that good news, the response is to receive it. Like, yes! Yes, I, I want to give the Lord my heart. I want him to save me. I believe in my heart. I confess with my mouth, Jesus is Lord. Lord, save me. Now, at that point, that's all we know. Just give the Lord my heart. Like the, 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 there was nothing in the moment of your salvation where you got out of contract and you started discussing with the Lord, like, what does it mean that I give you my heart? There's, there's no negotiation. Well, you can have my soul, but my mind, that's, that's mine. You know, my spirit, yeah, you can redeem that, but my body, I don't know, I'm going to hang on to that. There's no negotiation. You just, yes, yes, yes. Well, as you learn more fully 
that when you yielded your heart to the Lord, the one you put your trust in to save you is the same one you put your trust in to control you. He knows what's best for you. He knows how to direct you. He knows how to lead your life. And so now we have to learn to trust him. We have to learn how to open up those spaces of our heart that formerly we closed. And we need to invite Jesus to take his place on the driver's seat of our life. And let's make sure we hear this because salvation is all about surrender. But listen to me, there's a point of surrender, which is the beginning. Like there's a point of surrender. Like in the beginning, like I give you my heart. I surrender my heart to you. There's a point of surrender. You can't be saved without a point of surrender. You can't. Salvation is more than just checking a bunch of boxes of things you believe. You, you have, yes, I surrender my life. There's a point of surrender in salvation. But, oh, friend, listen, there's also a process of surrender and salvation where you learn how to increasingly acknowledge Jesus' place of absolute control over your heart and life. Now, listen, listen. Hopefully you've been listening, but listen to this. There's a danger in hearing what I'm saying and not heeding to it. There's a danger in hearing the fact that Jesus must be Lord and then not welcoming him to be in that space in your life. And guess what? Just because you came to church today, you can't claim ignorance anymore. Well, I didn't know. Oh, no. Now you do. He must be Lord of your life. And listen, we can't kick the can of indifference. Eh, I get around to that. Can't do that anymore. Because there's a consequence to our rejection of Jesus as Lord of our life. I'm going to say it again. There's a consequence to the rejection of Jesus being the Lord of your life. Now some hard scriptures. Luke chapter 6, verse 46. Why do you keep calling me Lord, Lord, when you don't do what I say? That's Jesus talking. You read between the lines and here's what he's saying. I'd rather you not call me Lord. And me not be that in your life. I think you should do all of us a favor and just not call me that. If I'm not going to be that. Next hard scripture. Matthew chapter 7. Again, Jesus talking. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy? 
cast out demons, work mighty works or miracles? Didn't we do all those things in your name? We called you Lord. We came to church. We sang the songs. We gave the money. We went to the small group. And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Look at that word. Lawlessness. Lawlessness is a reference to knowing the way, knowing the law, knowing the command, knowing the direction, but refusing to follow it. Knowing the way, knowing the direction, knowing the command, but refusing to follow it. Lawlessness. Another hard scripture. Hebrews chapter 6. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, and who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance. To their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. Well, what that really means is, no, no. We're not auto-correcting. We're going to let it say what it says. I was raised a Baptist. I sometimes like to tease that I'm a recovering Baptist. I am grateful for my background that gave me an appreciation for the word, taught me a priority of evangelism and mission. One thing that Baptists are known for in their theology is once saved, always saved. And there are certainly scriptures that we could cite that affirm like the security of a believer. Jesus says in John 6, And this is the will of God, that I should not lose any of those you have given me. He also says in John 10, I gave them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one can snatch them away from me. So I think we're all glad, like the origin of salvation is rooted in God's faithfulness and his forever nature. Right? So the security of a believer is we're saved in his hands. But don't hurry to autocorrect Hebrews 6 so that it doesn't say what it says. Great theologian from the 20th century, F.F. F. Bruce, made this comment about Hebrews 6. It says, the warning has been both unduly minimized and unduly exaggerated. Exaggerated by creating a spirit of fear. 
where we feel like we are just dangling by a thread in constant jeopardy of getting booted by God. But unduly minimized by suggesting that the warning itself is not even real. Leon Morris, another scholar from the 20th century, writes this, unless the verse is speaking of a real possibility, his warning means nothing. What I'm trying to say to you is that passage couldn't be any more clear that there is a warning and those who have been enlightened, those who have tasted the heavenly gift, and if that ain't salvation, I don't know what it is, those who have shared in the Holy Spirit, tasted the goodness of the word and the power of the coming age. Listen, we are susceptible to an unwanted outcome if we choose to repeatedly ignore the warning and ignore the wooing of Jesus to be our Lord. Don't be in a space today where you go, oh yeah, I know all of that, but you keep kicking the can in indifference and you don't own the fact that Jesus must become your Lord. He must. So let's Let's make sure we're clear on a few things. Number one, this. Here's Jesus' lordship of your life. Let's be clear. Number one, he must become the Lord of my life, no holding anything back. Where you're sitting right now, there can't be any negotiations. He's Lord or he's not. You have to own that reality. That means, listen, Jesus has a right to tell you who your boyfriend is and what you do when you're with him. He has the right to tell you where you direct your money. He has the right to tell you the career path you choose. He's got the right to tell you how to raise your kids. Oh, oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. Oh, no. He can tell you how to raise your kids. Why? Because he's the Lord. And he must become the Lord of your life. Now, let me say to you quickly, submission to his lordship is a process. Ain't nobody perfect. Ain't nobody perfectly submitted to his lordship. Like it is a constant walk for us to recognize, yet this is your place. Yes, this is your place. Yes, this is your place. But there's a difference between recognizing his place in your life and just deposing his lordship with your control of your own life. And I'm just saying to you, there can't be any of that. He must become Lord of your life. Here's a second thing. We'll need the Holy Spirit's help in both surrendering and walking out our surrender. Remember what we said earlier? The Holy Spirit has a place in your life as a follower. He's been given to you. He lives within you. And we need him to help us with surrender. 1 Corinthians 12.3 offers a strange 
point of insight. He says, I, wanna, I want you to know that no one speaking by the Spirit of God will curse Jesus. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Spirit. Let me tell you why that's strange. Because there's all kind of people who can just say Jesus is Lord. And they're not saved. So it can't mean that a person is unable to utter the words, Jesus is Lord, without the agency of the Holy Spirit. That cannot be what that means. What it means is we cannot, we cannot say Jesus is Lord of our life without the help of the Holy Spirit. And he has to help you. Today, you can realize, you can hear his voice today. God is speaking to you at this point. Nobody's getting a pass on this, by the way. We all need Jesus to be better positioned as Lord of our life. There's places in your life where the Holy Spirit is starting to point and say, listen, Jesus needs to be the Lord of that. He needs to be the Lord of that. He, we're all sensing kind of that layer of convention. The, the, the Holy Spirit is going to point it out but he's also going to help you walk it out. I mean, there's somebody today, I'm going to use something very simple. Somebody today, man, I, I realize, man, my lungs are being affected by my habit of smoking. And I feel Jesus telling me I've, I've got to yield that to him. There's something about in the moment to say, I'm going to have Jesus Lord over my ciggies, right? There's something about that. But walking that out, come on, bro. That urge tomorrow is going to be strong. So you need the Holy Spirit's help. The Holy Spirit's pointing out things to you right now where Jesus needs to be Lord in that area of your life. Spirit will point it out. Spirit will help you walk it out. Here's a third thing. Indifference is no longer an option. God leads us to moments of decision about Jesus' lordship, and we have to each decide what we are going to do. Your spouse can't decide that for you. Your parent can't decide that for you. Your friend that brought you to church, it can't decide that for you. You have to decide if Jesus is going to be lord of your heart. And remember, there is a risk with saying no to Jesus over and over and over. In fact, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2 gives us a warning that something can happen to us over time when you say no to Jesus and no to Jesus and no to Jesus and you kick the can and you're indifferent and you ignore his wooing. There's something that can happen to you. Your conscience can slowly die. Your heart get hard starts getting calloused and your conscience starts to die and the worst part of that is getting to the point where you can't even hear the Lord anymore you can't sense his presence and you come to church and everybody else is celebrating Jesus and man they're hot for the Lord and you just man I don't get it Because you've put yourself in a space where you've said no, 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 no. And there is a consequence to saying no to his lordship. Jesus must 
be Lord. Here's the last little point of clarification. Is that the Lord can do the impossible. Hebrews says, like, man, there's a, there's a point of impossibility. If you continue to reject Jesus' lordship of your life, there, you're, you are in jeopardy. You're in jeopardy. One thing that can happen, like your heart gets so hard, you don't hear the Lord anymore, and you're, like, like your soul starts to die. It might be impossible for me to do anything for you. It might be impossible for you to do anything for yourself. But what's impossible for us is possible with God. And so, man, listen, if you'll turn to Jesus, even in the hardness of heart that you feel and experience, if you'll turn to Jesus, there's always hope. You can still, no matter, where, no matter where you've been, how many times you've said no to Christ, right now where you are, you can let Jesus step into the driver's seat of your life. I told some of you the story of how I became a follower of Jesus. Campus Crusade was a big part of that. I, I, I met somebody who worked for Campus Crusade. They, they took me out to lunch and they took out a napkin on the, on the table at the restaurant where we were. And they started to draw. This guy drew a big circle on the napkin. And then right in the middle of the napkin, he put this little H. He said, what is that? He said, well, we're going to make sure that's like a, like a chair, like, like a throne chair. And so I want you to think for just a second. The circle is your life. That is the throne of your life. And I want to ask you to do something. I want you to take like a cross, like a cross. And I want you to put a cross where Jesus is in your life. Is he inside the circle, but not on the throne? Is he outside of the circle? I'd been to church my whole life. I'd heard the gospel over and over, but there was something about the simplicity of that napkin and the circle and the chair that nailed me to the wall. Because I knew in that moment, as I looked at that drawing, I knew, man, if I was honest, I'd put the cross on the floor because that's how far away I am from the Lord. But instead, I kind of went, oh, you know, like, can I get out of here? Kind of on the border. And that brother looked at me and said, man, I tell you what, you're never going to find. You're never going to find what you're looking for until Jesus is right here. It nailed me. Within two weeks, man, I had given my heart to Jesus because I realized there was no way. The path that I was on, there was no way it was going to lead to where I wanted to go. A fruitful life. An enduring life. A good, it would never lead there without Jesus being Lord of my life. Can I say to you again, he must be Lord of your life. Stand with me.